0: good morning, everyone. It's great to see you guys. Thanks for being here, for joining us for worship at the Vista. We are um, always glad to have you join us. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Once again, Luke chapter 24. We've been walking through a sermon series um, called Jesus According to Luke. We've been in this series since January, uh, just walking through Dr. Luke's version of the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus. and so. Last week we talked about resurrection, right? Because it was Easter, and that's what that's what you talk about on Easter. And um, it is again the most significant event that has ever taken place in the history of the world. It is the event that our entire faith hinges on. We said last week, if someone could disprove the resurrection, uh, everything Christians believe simply falls apart. Uh, We literally uh, would not have a faith to speak of at all if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus. And so last week, we talked about the resurrection, we celebrated the resurrection together. And what I want to do, we have a couple weeks left in our series, and we want to talk about, as we wrap up the Gospel of Luke, uh, some of the events that happened immediately following the resurrection, okay? And so in Luke 24 today, we're going to look at the conversation that Jesus has as he walks on this road, right after he is raised from the dead, um, he has a conversation with a couple of guys walking along the road, and uh, we're going we're gonna to unpack that. I'm going to jump right in because, well, they only give me about 25, 30 minutes to preach. And I got a lot to talk about. And if I go long, I will hear about it. So I just blame it on the Holy Spirit. That usually works, but um, here we go. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, it says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. So a couple things really quick. That very day, so this was the same day that Jesus rose from the grave, the same day that he walks out of the tomb. He joins these guys on the journey, okay? Uh, it's not like, you know, man, rising from the dead will really take it out of you, so Jesus needed a break, right? No, it's that same day. He, he walks out of the grave, and then he joins these guys on this seven-mile journey to Emmaus, okay? Uh, we don't know. These guys were not, they're not one of the 12. They're not two of the 12 official disciples, um, Uh, So so we'll learn one of their names here in a little bit. But they're they're two guys that are walking along. They're they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about all the stuff that's happened over the last few days. And then Jesus himself shows up and he journeys along with them. And so what we get is a conversation that we get to sort of eavesdrop into. This conversation we get to eavesdrop into. Now, before I get into their conversation and what was going on, um, I'll just say this. Um, Ever since Jesus walked out of the grave... Those that don't believe in Jesus have tried to explain um, away the resurrection. They've tried to explain that people don't really rise from the grave. And so there must be some other explanation as to how Jesus, you know, verifiably, historically died on a Roman cross uh, and then days later was seen by multitudes of people alive again. Uh, There's got to be some reason to explain why there's no tomb, there's no place, there's no burial site, there's no nothing. So there's always been these explanations by non-believers to sort of explain away the resurrection. Someone stole the body. or I mean, there's all these different explanations. One of the biggest ones early on, um, because, again, even non-Christian secular historians uh, showed and verified that Jesus was seen alive after he died... On a cross, and so one of the ways that they explained that away was to say, "Well, he didn't really die on the cross." Okay, this was one of the big myths early on. Some religions still hold this today. Jesus was a good person. He he died at the hands of the Romans. It was kind of an unjust death. But he was a good guy. Taught some good stuff. Um, but he didn't really die on the cross. Uh, we don't. They didn't know as much medically as we know today. Most likely, he was just sort of unconscious for a while. They thought he was dead. And then that would explain why later, you know, he was alive again and seen alive again. That's one of the the great myths, that he didn't really die on the cross. And here's what I would tell you. Knowing all that Jesus went through, okay, we know that he was beaten mercilessly. Flesh ripped off his body. Many criminals died from the beating before they ever got to the cross, right? You probably heard that. Then we know that he was forced to carry his own, uh, you know, instrument of death, the cross, um, through the streets and up this hill. At one point, we're told that the, the weight of the cross literally falls and crushes him to the point where he can't carry it any longer. So they compel another man to carry the cross the rest of the way. They get to the cross. They nail him to the cross with spikes through his arms and through his feet, okay? He's hanging on the cross, struggling to breathe, uh, he hangs there for some time and ultimately dies. And just to make sure that he's dead, we're told that a soldier walks along before they take his body down and runs a spear through his side. It Says that blood and water uh, spilled out, meaning it punctured his heart sac and blood and water pours out. Okay. Then they take his body down and they lay him in a cold, dark tomb, wrapped up like a money a mummy, with no uh, no medical attention, no medical care whatsoever for three days. And then we're supposed to believe that he magically regained consciousness, walked out of the tomb, and joined some guys on a seven-mile jaunt to Emmaus. Listen, I have stepped on a Lego and twisted my ankle playing basketball before, and I can't walk for like two weeks. They drove spikes through his feet. They beat him. They did all this stuff to him, and we're supposed to believe that Jesus was ready for a seven-mile journey. Let's go. Let's do this, right? No. Jesus really, really died, and he really, really bodily, physically rose from the grave, fully whole again, okay? It's not just some spiritual resurrection. Some would say, well, when the Christians talk about resurrection, what they mean is he's spiritually alive in our hearts, but not physically. No, he is really physically, bodily alive, okay? And completely whole again. And so he joins these guys on the journey. Again, I would submit to you that it takes more faith to believe he could roll out of the tomb after three days of being unconscious with no medical care and and seven-mile journey to Emmaus than it does to actually believe he rose from the dead. Okay? That's just me. Maybe you're different. I'm just saying. He joins these guys on the journey. And look at verse 16. It says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking and said, then one of them uh, named Cleopas answered him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these last days? And he said to them, what things? (laughs) I love this. I love, you don't think Jesus had a sense of humor. You got to read the gospels a little bit more, okay? Because Jesus, I mean, he was sarcastic at times. He was, I mean, he was, he was funny. Jesus is playing along here. These guys are talking about Jesus and all the stuff that's happened. And Jesus himself rolls up and they don't see him. Now, again, it wouldn't have been that uncommon to not automatically pay a lot of attention to a guy walking along with you. Um, Roads were traveled by foot by a lot of people. They didn't have cars. So think about the numbers of cars that rode alongside of you or crossed your path. I mean, they didn't have that. So there's constantly people making journeys from city to city, walking along the roads. Wouldn't have been uncommon for someone to walk up beside you. Where are you going? I'm going to, oh, I'll just roll with you guys and not pay a lot of attention but they don't recognize Jesus. And they're talking about Jesus. And he's like, hey, what are y'all talking about? And they're like, oh, there was this guy named Jesus. And you don't know what's going on the last few days? No, tell me about this guy. Tell me what happened the last few days. What things are you talking about? He's playing along here. He's playing along. And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they didn't see him. In other words, man, some of these women told us this amazing story, but I don't know if we can really believe those women. We don't know what to believe. We don't know what to believe. In verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning then with Moses and all the prophets, so the Old Testament, beginning with the Old Testament scriptures, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus joins these guys on a journey, and they're talking about the prophets, and we had hoped Jesus could do this, and Jesus joins them, and he's like, let me tell you all the scriptures and all the stuff that you're talking about? Let me show you how those things actually point to the very Jesus you're talking about. Here's the big idea in the first part of this text. The big idea is this, that the Bible is about Jesus, okay? Not just the New Testament, but all of the Bible, the Old Testament included. Ultimately, it's all about the person and work of Jesus. It's about pointing us to, foreshadowing Jesus, okay? So, this is important because a lot of people, they want to sort of boil this book down to nothing more than a self-help book that's about you, okay? Oh, well, you know, I've got some stuff going on in my life. Let's see if the Bible can help me raise my kids or help me with my marriage or help me have a better life or help me make some money. Or help A lot of people want to take, the book, take this book and make it a book that's about them. And there's some good stuff in here that can help you do a lot of, that, of those things. But listen, ultimately, the Bible's not a book that's, that's about you and me. It's not about my life and what I'm going through. The Bible is a book that is about the person and work of Jesus. It's about revealing to us Jesus. In fact, I would say this. If you don't, um, if you don't, know Je- you don't connect this book to Jesus, you're going to have a really hard time understanding large parts of this book. This book is all about him. It's all about him. And this is what Jesus is telling these guys on their way to Emmaus. They're quoting all the scripture, and he's like, let me, let me unpack this for you. Jesus taught that the Bible was about him. And I don't know how, I don't really have time to go through every kind of detail and all the different stuff and all the different ways, but I'll just kind of high level, sort of high level, I want to just point out some, some rather more obvious things in the way that the Old Testament in particular points us to the person and work of Christ, okay? So first of all, as you get into the Old Testament, There's a lot of people, a lot of different characters. Some of you, maybe Sunday school, you heard about some of the famous characters of the Old Testament. I would say that a lot of those characters, they really foreshadow and point us to Jesus, okay? Um, For example, I'll give you a few of them. Um, Paul talks about Jesus being the greater Adam, okay? So Adam, uh, first man in the Bible, all right? Uh, Paul later would write that um, where Adam messed up, Adam sinned, Adam failed, Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus is the greater Adam. Just as we all sinned through the first Adam, we can all be saved through the second or the greater Adam, that is Christ, okay? Adam, um, again, he sinned. The greater Adam atoned for sin. The first Adam gave in to uh, Satan. The the, the second Adam, the the last Adam, he defeated Satan. Whereas the first Adam sinned, again, at a tree, The, the, the greater Adam, Jesus, he atoned for sin on a tree, In a lot of ways, you see Jesus come along, and he is, again, the greater, the better Adam. You see a man later in the Old Testament named Isaac. He is the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. They were really, really old and could not have children, or so they thought. But God said, you're going to have a child, and this is going to be a son of promise, And they longed for and prayed for and hoped for this child. And so God finally, a lot of stuff happens, but eventually he gives them the son of promise. It's a son named Isaac. Well, as Isaac grows up, at one point God's sort of testing the faith of Abraham and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and you're going to sacrifice him to me. What? Yeah, sacrifice your son. So you can read the story in there. Isaac by this time is a strapping young man. Abraham was really, really old, which means... Isaac most likely carried the wood for his own sacrifice up on the mountain where God told him to and then laid down on the altar. And Abraham raises the knife to sacrifice his own son and he hears a voice saying, stop, don't, don't kill your son. And then we're told that there is a, a lamb, a ram caught in the thicket. And so that, that lamb becomes the, the substitute. So instead of sacrificing his son Isaac, there's an animal there That can be the sacrifice. But listen, you see how that foreshadows Jesus? That again, there would be the father who's sacrificing his son. The father sacrifices the son. Jesus is the greater Isaac. This time there was no lamb caught in the thicket. This time Jesus was the lamb. He was sacrificed. It's an Old Testament story that points to Jesus. It reveals to us the person and work of Jesus. It clarifies what Christ has done for us you got a king like David. David's the greatest king in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along in the line and lineage of David. He's the greater David. He's the greater king. He, he lives without sin. Where David sinned a lot, Jesus never did. You have a guy later in the Old Testament named Jonah. Jonah, God says, go to the people of Nineveh, preach to them. Jonah's like, I don't like those people. I don't want to go talk to them. He runs away from God. Some of you know the story. He gets swallowed by a really big fish. Three days later, fish is like, spits him up on the land, right? Jonah then goes, preaches the shortest sermon in history to the people of Nineveh. It's like three words, and they all get saved and turn to God. It's like an amazing story, right? Jesus, when talking about this episode in the New Testament, Jesus is like, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. Just as Jonah came out alive, Jesus will come out alive. Just as Jonah saved a multitude... Jesus will save an even greater multitude. Jesus is the better, greater Jonah. And you can do this through a lot of characters. You also see it through um, events, holidays, festivals in the Old Testament. We talked about one a few weeks ago, Passover. Remember the story of Passover, where God saved his people because of the blood of the lamb that was covering them, that was on their doorpost, okay? Jesus comes along and he is our Passover lamb. We are saved by the blood of the Lamb that covers us, the sacrifice of Christ. The whole celebration of Passover points us to Jesus. Another celebration, they, uh, every year they would celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, where the people would deal with their sin. They would go to their priest, and the priest would have two goats, and the people would confess their sin, and he would sort of symbolically place his hands on the goats. And one goat, as the, symbolically the people's sin would go into that goat, that goat would be slaughtered as a sacrifice. Absor- again, the blood spilled, the wrath of God absorbed, right? The other goat would be let go, would be set free. That's called the scapegoat. You ever heard that analogy? The scapegoat. That comes from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is our sacrificial goat lamb. He's also our scapegoat for our sins, All of it foreshadows, all their holidays and festivals and celebrations, they point to the person and work of Jesus. There's prophecies all through the Old Testament, literally hundreds, I don't have time to go through them all, but prophecies that point to Jesus, who he would be, where he would be born, who he would be born to, how he would die, how he would rise again, over and over and over, and Jesus fulfills all of those prophecies written hundreds of years before he was born. The Old Testament pointing to Jesus, it's about Jesus. Then you get into certain offices, official offices or roles or titles of people. You have the high priest in the Old Testament. People would go to their high priest, confess their sin. The high priest was the mediator between God and the people. Well, Jesus is our great high priest. You don't have to come to me and confess all your sin anymore because you can go directly to the Father through the Son. Okay, Jesus is the great high priest. That whole office points us to Jesus. There's the prophets of the Old Testament. The prophets spoke the word of God. Well, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the greater prophet, revealing to us the word of God and who God is. There's shepherds in the Old Testament. Many of the patriarchs were shepherds. They were shepherds. It was an important profession. Comes along, Jesus comes along, and Scripture declares that Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. We read about kings, again, like David. Well, Jesus comes along, he's the greater king. He's the king of kings. The office of judge. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Judges. They would, again, they would declare what is righteous and they would would judge the people. And Jesus comes along as the greater judge. And so, again, all through the Old Testament, through people, characters, holidays, festivals, prophecies, offices, titles, all of it, ultimately, is about Jesus. And this is what Jesus is along this journey with these guys. He's saying, man, all the stuff, guys, you're reading about, that's about Jesus. That, this guy you're talking about, yeah, that's, this stuff's about him. It's about him. And this is part of the problem in Jesus' day and why he had such a problem with the religious leaders. All through Luke's gospel, we've talked about the antagonist of the story are the religious guys who knew this book backwards and forwards. And they studied it, memorized it. They could quote all the Old Testament scriptures to you. They knew everything that they had talked about. Over in John 5, verses 39 and 40, though, Jesus is talking to these guys, and here's what he says. He's looking right at the Pharisees, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Hear me. This book does not change your life. This book points you to a person who can change your life. Are you with me? Some people will be like, oh, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, it'll change your life. The Bible's the Bible. Listen, I'm a Bible guy. Those of you that know me, man, I love the word of God. I try to stand under the word of God. I believe that a lot of this is literal, uh, actual. I mean, listen, this is a really, really, really important book, but make no mistake. The book's not about me. It's not so I can, you know, to make my life better. The book is about revealing and pointing me to a person who can change my life. And that person is Jesus. And that's what he talks about to these guys on the journey. All right, I've got to really, really hurry because I'm running behind. Let's look at what happens next. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Again, you see Jesus playing along. They get to where they're going. He's like, all right, guys, y'all have a great day. Good talk, right? And they're like, oh, stay with us. Eh, all right, I guess I got nothing else to do. Sure, I'll, I'll come in. I'll have a meal with you. So they go in together. It says that when he was at the table with them, he, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, <laughs> right? You had to admit, in that moment, you're like, oh, wait, I, I, know that, I know that guy. Where'd he go, right? Like, he vanishes from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, a seven-mile journey on foot. They just get there, eat a meal, and they're like, we got to go back, <laughs> Right? we got to go find the other disciples. we got to tell them, okay? They rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together. They said, the Lord has risen indeed. Basically, they go, "Uh, the story those women were saying, yeah, that's true, right? Uh, It's true. We can believe them, because we saw him also, okay? They said, uh, they told him what had happened on the road, and then they and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, okay? They go back to Jerusalem, find the disciples, they're like, guys, we, we were walking along the road, and Jesus rolls up, and we didn't know it was him, and he tells us the scriptures, and we're like, wow. And then we have a meal, and as we're having the meal with them, we're like, that's Jesus, okay? Again, breaking bread together, anytime the Bible talks about breaking bread, it's sort of a simple expression for they had a meal together. They sat around the table, and they had a meal. We've talked a lot about having a meal. The Bible talks about having a meal and how important that is, getting around a table, community, fellowship. Man, there's just something that happens when you have a meal with other people, okay? You have a meal with other people. And so the Bible talks about it really as like this holy act where you practice community. And I love the fact that the scriptures tell us that Jesus was made known in the breaking of the bread. Jesus was made known to them as they shared a meal together around a table. Now, I can be guilty of overly simplifying things, Um, and so when I read this, here's what I see. Jesus walks out of the tomb, and what's the first thing he's going to do? What's the first thing Jesus is going to do, right? Like, go find his mom? Jesus loved his mom. Go find Mary and be like, mom, hey, give her a hug, you know? Nope. Or what I would do is I would go find my brothers. Jesus had brothers. I would go find my brothers and be like, I told you fools, here I am, right? Right? You didn't believe me. You thought I was crazy, alive, right? Like, I would have found my brothers and probably rubbed it in a little bit. The first thing Jesus does after walking out of the grave is he leads a Bible study on the road to Emmaus, and then he joins some guys in a home around some food. That sounds a lot like small group to me, right? See where I'm going with this? The first things Jesus does after walking out of the grave is Bible study and small group right? Bible study in small group. And it's in these things that Jesus is made known. Jesus is made known as he unpacks the scriptures and has fellowship and community around a table. That's where Jesus is made known. The last thing I want to mention really quick is in verse 30, it talks about this really familiar sequence of the bread. Years ago, I heard a sermon at a conference. It was probably like a decade ago. And I don't remember like 80% of what I learned. Maybe you're like me. Um, But this has always stuck with me. Um, Anytime you see Jesus, like um, when it comes to meals and it says he he takes the bread, there's always this familiar sequence. In fact, the Apostle Paul uh, in Corinthians talks about the night that he was betrayed, Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it or distributes it, right? It's the same sequence when Jesus takes the bread, and that's what happens here in verse 30. It says that he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. Same sequence. Takes it, blesses it, breaks it, gives it. As the church, it is our, um, I'll say responsibility, but also our great joy and privilege to make Jesus known to a lost and dying world. We get to make Him known. That's part of what God wants to do in us, through us, is help make Him known to a lost and dying world. And I would submit to you that it's the same pattern, sequence, order um, of the bread that He does that in our lives. Let me explain. Jesus takes us, saves us, redeems us. He he calls us, whatever language you want to you want to you use, if you're a Calvinist in here, you'll say he predestined us, right? He saves us, <clears throat> that's number one. Number two is he blesses us. And we are blessed in Christ Jesus. Colossians talks about that. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You and I are sons and daughters of a holy God. We are heirs to a promise. All the spiritual blessings are available to us because God has blessed us in Christ Jesus. He saves us, he blesses us in Christ. Then, then there comes the uncomfortable part of breaking, right? And that happens a lot of different ways. It's that refining work in our lives that's not always comfortable. Some of you have been through some really difficult seasons of life, and you've talked to me about, man, just the spirit of brokenness that you had during those seasons. Some of you have talked about um, working hard to overcome some addictions and strongholds in your life kind of an uncomfortable breaking and refining that's going on. Some of you have talked about, um, call it kind of a a dark night of the soul or kind of a spiritual desert place where you, you just felt very distant and far from God and like your prayers weren't getting above the roof and you didn't know what to do. And listen, it's that breaking and refining that takes place. It looks different in all of our lives, but you show me men and women that are used by God in a powerful and mighty way and I'll show you men and women that have at some point in their journey gone through some breaking. They've gone through some refining. Because after God breaks us, then, man, then we're prepared and we're ready to be given and distributed to be a blessing for the glory of God to the people around us. Do you see the sequence of the bread and how God does the same thing in the church? It's our joy and our responsibility. And so God takes us and saves us. He blesses us. He refines us. He breaks us. And then He uses us so that we can give more of Him to the world around us. He became known to them in the breaking of the bread. How are we going to make Jesus known? In the story here, it happens through the scriptures and through small group, having a meal. And then there's a lot of different ways that we get to, get to be a part of making Jesus known. But he takes us, he blesses us, he breaks us, and then he uses us. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that your word reveals to us who you are. God, I pray you remind us today that your word is not primarily a book about us. It's not about us. It has some helpful things in there for us, but God, it is not a book about us. It is a book about you, how you have acted on our behalf. It is a book that reveals to us the person and work of your son, Jesus God, we're grateful for that truth. Father, we're thankful today that you choose to use us to make yourself known to a lost and dying world. And that is a great responsibility, but it's also a great joy and privilege that that you choose to use us in spite of us, in spite of our brokenness. Father, I pray that we would remember that. We're thankful that you save us, that you bless us, and God, even for the uncomfortable breaking and the refining... God, we're grateful because it's often through that that you shape us and mold us and prepare then to give and distribute. And so God, we're just grateful for all of it. Grateful for all of it. Thankful that you walked out of that tomb conquering Satan, sin, and death once and for all. And we celebrate and we rejoice in and we live in that truth today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.